That's going to be the intro to the next segment. <laughs> All right, Matt wants to go to bed. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by Iswatini. What? <laughs> I was too. What is a what? Oh, Iswatini. Iswatini. So I, I don't know how I missed this. I mean, yeah. this wasn't the first time I found out about this, but the fact that... I had to look uh, it up. Is that a kind of yeah, that, spaghetti? No. No, no, no. That It's uh, 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 a tiny sweat. <laughs> Swaziland changed its name what? to Eswatini. Who, I'm sorry, back way up here. <laughs> what are we talking about here? I'm totally lost. He's confused by the term Eswatini, right? Yeah, Swaziland changed its name to Eswatini. It did. It did. Yeah, huh. you missed it too. Huh. I, yeah. I missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How exciting. I know. So there was one of the one of the sites in the study we we're going to be talking about today. So I was, I fortunately I had seen it before, but not long before. Anyway, so do, I guess the obvious question is in in the language of Eswatini, does that literally mean Swaziland? I mean, is this a, a translation into the native native I, vernacular? I don't know the answer to that question. We should find out. But anyway, I am Matt Fox. I am here from the Boston University's School of Public Health Department of Epidemiology and Global Health. I am here as always with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Matt. From, from the Department of Global Health. And as always, they are in the godly studio. I am on site again. I'm in Berlin this time. Such a trotter. Yeah, what can I do? And uh, I did want to remind everyone to head over to the POP Health Exchange website. That's www.pophealthyx.org. You, you, you can get all sorts of stuff like Kraftwerk. No, no, I, I am. Downloads. I want to. I want to be clear. <laughs> I want to be clear that this is pop. You're a pop, as in, as in population, which rhymes with shop oh. or U-ulation? stop. No, no, pop, p, pop, not pot, because apparently on Twitter, <laughs> apparently on Twitter, I have been told that in some of our episodes, it sounds like I'm saying pot. Health exchange. <laughs> oh no! I mean, that would be very apropos for the day. Yeah, and the so Massachusetts, I want to be very clear. Right. After all, and the location, right? Courtney Lynch, if you are listening, we do not go to the Pot Health Exchange. And I did check, by the way, if you would like that domain name is not taken, you can have it. <laughs> Wow. So anyway, as a, as a, another reminder, please uh, go ahead and go over to iTunes and whatever podcast app you use and give us a rating. You can't find us on iTunes because we're listed under something else. Is that, that, that I, I am still struggling myself, so I, I agree with you. There is something weird that's still going on. We're going to try and yeah. fix that. Nick's but anyway. Is, Nick is going to fix that. Got to fix that. Yeah. Now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are going to look at the impact of injectable contraception on HIV acquisition. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we will talk about what we can do to better communicate science. And then in our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us about the evolution of placentas. So, <laughs> No, I won't. Not let's this week. Get in. Let's get into segment one. So we, uh, for this week for segment one, we're going to look at an article which got into the issue of whether, excuse me, HIV incidence is affected by hormonal contraception. So the study was titled HIV incidence among women using intramuscular depot metroprogesterone acetate 
a copper intrauterine device or levon or gestural implant for contraception. I tried practicing those, but <laughs> okay, I let's just try couldn't that again. get it. Medroxyprogesterone acetate versus copper IUD versus levonorgestrel. Okay, so that was, I was not even close, is what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, a randomized multicenter open label trial that was published in The Lancet. And this was published by, as a group authorship, by the uh, ECHO Trial Consortium, which is the evidence for contraceptive options and HIV outcomes. So here are some of the headlines on this one. Devix says reassuring contraceptives and HIV trial, also a wake up call, experts say. I found that one really hard to even figure out what they were getting at. Mm. But the New York Times says Depro-Provera, an injectable contraceptive, does not raise HIV risks. Drugs.com says HIV risk does not differ with three contraceptive methods. And MedPage today says no links between birth control type, HIV, and African women. So I did want to just start off by acknowledging that the three of us do know some of the authors on this study, so I just thought I'd put that out there as so that the we can be aware of that. I don't think it uh, gives us a conflict of interest here. But Don, can you start us out by just telling us what happened in the study? In particular, I'm curious. Uh, so I struggled a little bit when I read this to keep in my head the three different interventions that they were using. So if you could just sort of walk us through that. Sure. This, this study was trying to resolve a decades-long issue wherein prior studies that were not randomized controlled trials, observational studies and others of variable quality, seemed to indicate that women who who received an injectable contraceptive, which we'll call depot, essentially it's a shot, I think it's every 12 weeks or so, that needs to be repeated, but um, essentially is a very effective contraceptive, um, seemed to increase the uh, uh, HIV acquisition rate in comparison to other forms of contraception. And, and what these authors did was to look at that versus the implantation of an intrauter- a copper-based intrauterine device versus what we'll call an implant, which is, which is using sort of a hormone that is implant, a hormone device that's implanted in the skin and then slowly um, releases uh, contraceptive hormones so that women, while that device is in, and I don't know what the length of, of, of time that it's effective for, are prevented from getting pregnant. It's long. It's long. It's like years, yeah. a couple of years could, long, could be, I think. And then that needs to, be, needs to be replaced. So, so this is a head-to-head comparison of these three different forms of contraception. I'm trying to address the, the issue that the one form, the injective, the, the depot, the injection, seemed to previously increase the, the level of um, um, heterosexual acquisition of HIV. Um, which is a really important thing because there's about 600,000 new infections, HIV infections per year in African women. And modern contraception is something that's, that's, that's really um, beginning to be taken up at a large scale in sub-Saharan Africa. They estimate there's about 58 million women who um, actually use that. So what these researchers did was to mount a large, randomized, multi-center, open-label trial at 12 sites, one in Swaziland, um, one in Kenya, and one in Zambia, and nine in South Africa. And they chose those sites because those sites tended to um, have high uptake of these contraceptive methods as well as high HIV incidence. The screening and enrollment were done at research centers, freestanding clinics, and university clinics. The inclusion criteria were a woman who's HIV negative, sexually active, non-pregnant, and is between the ages of 16 to 35 years, who agreed to use the assigned device for 18 months, and we're not currently using injectable IUD or implantable um, contraception, any of the three three methods that were being tested in this in this study. 
Um, an exclusion criteria were a medical contraindication for a hormone-based contraceptive, like a history of blood clots or strokes or uterine cancer or things like that, or the prior use of any of these devices in the last six months or that they were intending to become pregnant within the next six months. So those were the exclusion criteria. They recruited from family planning, reproductive health, postpartum and post-abortion clinics, as well as other um, relevant clinics. And they um, also performed outreach into the community. So it seemed to be a, a pretty representative population of women. They were randomized at enrollment, um, one to one to one to the three arms. The personnel who were involved in determining the uh, HIV infection status at the end of the study or the pregnancy endpoint determination were blinded, but everybody else in the study were not blinded because obviously it would be very hard to blind people um, given, given the methodology. The depot, Provera, was given every three months. The IUD was implanted. And they also actually um, at baseline tested a subset of 60 women at each site for the presence of blood levels of the progestin hormone at baseline to determine how many of the women who were enrolled had, in fact, evidence in their blood that they had used one of these non-IUD methods previously. And they were going to, that was important in terms of the uh, analysis phase. Women were followed at one month after baseline to check to see that um, there were no serious adverse offense, effects, that the IUD was still in place, and then um, every three months thereafter. If the IUD uh, had come out, it would be reinserted, and pregnancy testing was done at baseline and at the final visit, and women could change methods within the trial, and we'll get to that. A certain number of them did. They weren't prevented from doing that, but as, as, you'll, as you'll hear, it, this was an um, intention-to-treat analysis. One aspect that I thought was actually quite interesting was that the author, authors stated that pre-exposure prophylaxis became the standard of care relatively late into this study. And that would be a a huge concern because if women are practicing pre-exposure prophylaxis differentially in the arms, it certainly could affect the, the, the main primary outcome. So of the women that were enrolled in the study, 622 reported using PrEP. And by group, it was about 30% in the depot group, about 35% in the IUD group, and about 35% in the implant group. And the medium duration of use was about 85 days, comprising about 195 women years, which was 2% of the total women years of observation, total being 10,409. So it comprised a relatively small portion of the observation period. But I think it's really important that, that they recorded that information. They had 80% power to detect a 50% increase in the hazard ratio of HIV infection during, uh, between groups across the, the period of observation. They assumed that there would be 3.5 per 100 women year HIV infection events um, and that there would be a 10% loss to follow up. That required 7,800 women be enrolled. They did a modified intention to treat using Cox and Kaplan-Meier. They also predefined the time off of the the implant and the depot. So if a woman decided she was not going to, she was going to discontinue one of those. Because she may have wanted to get pregnant, for example. Or she wanted to switch, or she was just non-compliant. They 
they predefined that 17 weeks since the last injection, she was still protected, and that period of time was included in the analysis. They had some time-varying covariates, such as vaginal sex with a condom, a new partner, and greater than one partner. So those were things to, to consider. It, it, the study occurred between December 2015 and September 2017. There were 12,000 women who were screened, roughly 7830 were enrolled, and it was about 2,600 in each group, with 20 to 50 excluded because they were HIV positive or had uh, not been HIV tested, and the final analytics um, group was about 2560. Per group. Per group, right. And the when you look at table one, the standard table one, which is comparing across the, the three arms, I thought they were remarkably balanced <laughs> yeah, with respect to age, marital status, lives with a partner or not, BMI, prior pregnancy, sexual behavior, and sexually transmitted infections. But also interesting, I thought that like the, the very high rates of STIs at baseline in this right. in this cohort, right. just worth noting. Yeah. I know you're going to get into that in the results, yeah. but it, it was it was an interesting portrait of, yeah. the, of the population here. Matt, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, only that um, you're, I agree with you. I saw the same thing in terms of the balance in the arms with uh, 2,600, you know, per arm that, I mean, that is sort of more or less what you, you, what should happen if randomization is working, but, but it is a really important observation. Yeah. And you consider that it was 12 different sites and three different countries. It's, it's, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. So, um, as far as follow-up was concerned, um, 94% of all scheduled visits to the end or to an, uh, an outcome event occurred, as I said, 10,000 women years of follow-up, 148 didn't receive the assigned method. 92% of the follow-up time women used the assigned method. So there was some switching subsequently. But still, 92% of the time covered with the intervention was right. pretty darn good. Pretty amazing, yeah. So there were 397 incident HIV infections for an overall incidence of 3.8 per 100 women years, which I thought was amazing because it's spot on. They, they assumed in their power calculations that it was 3.5 per 100 women years. It's depressingly high, isn't it? Depressingly high, yeah. And that- Especially in these communities, yeah, it's quite high. Yeah, really, really distressing. And, and that stratified out or, or balanced out to 36% of those infections, those outcomes were in the depot group, 35% were in the IUD group, and 29% were in the implant group. So the intention to treat hazard ratios for infection were depot versus IUD 1.04 with a confidence interval of 0.82 to 1.33, depot versus implant of 1.23 for a confidence interval of 0.95 to 1.59, and IUD versus implant of 1.18, 0.9 to 1.53. And the per-protocol analysis showed essentially no difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically what the statistics are saying is that the in terms of HIV incidence, they were very similar. Very similar. There was a trend towards a little bit... Oh, I hate right, that word. I won't say it. I won't say it. <laughs> I take it back. But in, in terms of our precision, we could not conclude that any of these were substantially different from any of the others. No. No. They also found uh, post-randomization differences in HIV-risky sexual behavior, which they speculated to be based on the side effects of the methods. And I didn't quite follow mm. that, that, that reasoning. So in summary, this, the contraceptives were highly effective. There was less than a 1% failure rate. There were um, relatively few serious adverse events, less than 4%, and slightly, uh, which were slightly less in the, in the implant group. 
But the HIV, as you mentioned, Chris, the HIV incidence is is alarmingly high in in this population. And this was not a high risk population. This was the general population it's of women of, chi- of childbearing age in these in these various communities. Yeah, a reminder yeah. to us that we that the the, the the you know HIV transmission risk remains extraordinarily high uh, in these parts of Africa. Yeah. Yeah. And especially uh, among young young women in particular. Oh, yeah. So, Chris, give us your take on on this study. But in particular, uh, I wanted you to to focus just a little bit on on the concept of equipoise. Just kind of explain what that is and and whether or not there was in fact equipoise to do this trial. Sure. So, starting with you know what is equipoise? Equipoise is 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 basically stating at the beginning of a randomized trial when you're trying to answer a question by randomizing one group to receive an intervention versus another group not to receive an intervention. In order to ethically justify doing that experiment, you have to really believe that you truly do not know the answer or, or like there's, there's very little uncertainty about what the answer would be. So for example, you know, I, I don't think there's ever been a randomized controlled trial of penicillin for men- meningitis versus placebo because it is so obvious that penicillin will cure meningitis and people who don't receive penicillin are very likely to die or be permanently brain damaged by this. So there would be no equipoise. So the, the answer cannot be tested in a randomized trial because the answer is obvious. And so w- what you're asking is, could we legitimately say here that we didn't know whether it, you know, the use of a hormonal contraceptive would or would not increase the risk of HIV? And similar to that, we also had to know the answer because this is a critical question in terms of family planning on a global scale. And and if we want to walk it back, Don, you alluded to this in your preamble, but there had been a number of observational epidemiologic studies that suggested that women who used hormonal contraceptives were at much higher risk of getting HIV than those who didn't. Now, and other and other studies found not another, another didn't, studies didn't find found the, that the opposite, right? Yeah. I mean, so so it was epidemiologically the data was a wash, but it, it's also like even if you only had that one study that said this, you would get some. Um, uh, was, was, it, was it truly? Was it truly a wash? I mean, it, it seemed like the observational data pointed more in the direction of, of there, probably there was being a uh, potential harm. Yes, um, not that it was strong data, but I'm just saying it. Well, I don't, I'm not sure it was a wash. Uh, well, I'm saying because there were some studies that said yes, there was, and some that there said there wasn't. There was, you know, there was conflicting evidence, but. Agreed. I would I would take away from the last five years that the the pivotal observational study that everyone got very excited about was the one in the Lancet about four or five years ago, which came out very on, on a very strong saying implying causal, you know that there was a there was a there was an increased risk and that it was and they argued that it was a causal increased risk. And that was a meta analysis. Uh, I think I it was. Don't know if it was a meta analysis or not, but I, I don't think the, the one I'm thinking was not a meta analysis. But they argued that that there was a biological mechanism behind this, right. and it had to do with the hormones change right. the right. placental structure or the, the excuse me the uterine structure, and make it more permeable so to HIV. Rationalizing yourself into a conclusion. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 the implications of that are so dire, right? But at the same time, you can say, wait a minute, like, what about confounding? Because women who use hormonal contraceptives are almost by definition not using barrier contraceptives like condoms. And so isn't it just a proxy for non-use of barrier contraceptives? And they argued that they covered, that they had controlled for that. But we all know that, that trying to control for a very sensitive sexual behavior, like condom use or non-use or, or like, 
partner frequency or number of partners or unprotected sex rates, all of these things are very sensitive issues. And the probability of truly being able to get accurate data on these things and therefore control from them is, I would say, is Giffy at best. Yeah. And so it always felt to us, or to me, certainly, I, I don't know about the two of you, but I, I felt like, you know, this epi study had needed to unresolved be unresolved confounding all over it yeah. and, and needed to be designed, you know, assessed in a randomized controlled trial setting. And they've now done that. And the results are like, let's be honest, a huge breath of relief. I mean, you can almost hear the sigh across the planet going, thank God it was actually just mostly confounding. And, okay. You pesky uh, epidemiologists. So, so- Hey, hey, stop that. <laughs> so, so my take on what you just said is yes, there is, there was equipoise to do this study, even though the evidence that we had at the time suggested that, you know, there was more likely to be, uh, there, there was a potential for harm, but that the, there was real need for the trial because the evidence was not clear. And this was a really important question. Uh, and I, and I would agree with that, but I just, I thought it was worth walking ourselves through that process. They, let um, me just add so, one thing to that. I, the, the authors s- sort of underscore that because they spend a fair amount of time in the description of the methods talking about the DSMB and how carefully the DSMB was following the study to be able to identify whether, in fact, there was harm unant- or unanticipated harm early on in the study so that they could jump in and stop the study if that's what they saw. Yeah, that was really impressive how much oversight they had and yeah. input from the local communities. Yep. It was a very ethically done study, in fact. And just to be clear, what's a DSMB? A data safety and monitoring board. Yeah, so a group of people charged with monitoring the data who are outside of the study who can actually stop the study if they identify either benefit or harms early on in the trial. So in reading through the study, I have to admit, I have I have some quibbles with the study. I, I have a particular issue that, that I want to talk to you guys about. But in general, I thought this was a, a really good study, and I thought it, it really kind of close the door on the issue for the most part. For the most and part. So, and so largely what I'm interested in talking to you guys about around this study is actually why we didn't get the clear information out of the observational studies. And I, I get it, Chris, you think it's it's confounding. I guess my, my bigger answer is there were studies that got it right, right? There were, there were some studies that found harm, but there were also a bunch of studies, or not a bunch, there were some studies that found uh, no harm. And the question is, you know, is this another example of a case where we accumulated a bunch of evidence only to find out that we were, you know, accumulating a repetition of the same kind of errors? Or is this a case where really the problem was meta-analysis is treating all the studies the same and some of those studies were were good and found the right answer and some of those studies weren't and meta-analysis is is to an extent leading us in the wrong direction. I don't know what you guys think about that. When you take a glorified average of correct versus incorrect, correct looks less correct. That's the problem. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that there are some people that believe that the hierarchy of, of, of rigor in, in, in terms of evidence puts meta-analysis fairly high at the top. And, and I think that this is a really good example of why that's, that, yeah. sh- that shouldn't necessarily be so. I think one, one solid RCT, to me, trumps, yeah. you know, a, a meta-analysis of two dozen observational studies. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is a great sort of textbook example of why we do randomized control trials and why we should be skeptical about observational studies, even very large observational studies based with lots of, you know, measuring of mm-hmm. important confounders and covariates. Yeah. And I, I so so then, Chris, I want to go back to the the issue that you raised about the the prior study that you said, you know, essentially they they found harm, and not only did they find harm, they they 
gave you a biologic plausibility argument for mm-hmm. what the mechanism would be. And I think, <laughs> you know, our, I assume that our listeners and, and we all are very familiar with Hill's criteria. We talked about it a little bit on the show earlier that, you know, the, the idea that the, the strength of or our ability to determine causation kind of goes up when, you know, we, we meet certain criteria. Many of them uh, have been kind of uh, already pointed out to, to be highly problematic. But the, the one that, that, you know, biologic plausibility always struck me as a, a challenging one because, sure, I would absolutely agree that we want biologic plausibility before we would conclude causation. But at the same time, we, we often can come up with a what we consider to be a biologically plausible mechanism yeah. when it's not there. Can, and so I'm can, just not sure It's sort of pressologic that we drag into it to yeah. force the argument too far about biological plausibility. Yeah, I, so I totally do, agree do, with do, you. Do do you think this is a case where we're we were just out over our skis and I keep saying that and I think that's the wrong uh, metaphor, but especially for sub-Saharan Africa, <laughs> exactly. Where we're where we're where we're trying, you know, where we we are finding what we want to find, or is this a case where it was just you know these were just hard studies to do observationally and we just we got this one we got this one wrong and the and the you know the gurus of the HIV prevention world knew this and that's why they felt the trial was so justified. Yeah. Uh, all of these are really great questions. I, I re- recall one of the things, one of the, the features of the, the previous observational Lancet study, and again, this was, this was not a meta-analysis. This was a, like just a big Southern African study. One of the funny things about that results in there was that the increased risk of HIV infection was not just the women who were using the hormonal contraceptions versus non-contraceptions, but it was the male partners of those women who were also experiencing higher rates of HIV infection. And so the, the biological plausibility part of this, Hull's criteria, starts to fall apart there because like, okay, maybe I would buy that, you know, progestin is going to change the thickness of the squamous epithelium in the uterus in some way that makes HIV get in more easily. Maybe I buy that. But how does it go in the opposite direction? The fact that the, the, the risk was nearly symmetrical for the men and the women, even though it was only the women who were taking the hormonal contraceptives, really made me think more and more that this is, this is confounding. Mm. And it's a better explanation than that this is biologically justified because the, the kind of confounding that would allow us to, to underestimate or mismeasure key sexual behaviors like condom use and partner number and, you know, unprotected sex rates would apply potentially equally to both of those sexes and would explain why the couple seem to migrate in the same direction rather than just the woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think this, you know, this really elegantly, you know, confirms that theory I had from four years ago. And, and you know, because the, the copper IUD, which we should emphasize is not a hormonal contraceptive, had roughly the same rate of HIV infections in the women who were using that compared with the other two methods. And so there you go. What we don't know is, is about oral contraceptives, I guess, technically. Um, which could be a little bit different because right. the, the adherence rates are going to be different. And the authors were very careful to point out that these findings really need to be restricted to these three modalities and that you, 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 you really can't extrapolate to any other form of birth control. Right, like condom use was not really addressed right. here. But, you know, with all that said, you know, the, the, the main question, does hormonal contraception appear to increase a woman's risk of acquiring HIV? The answer appears to be no. Okay, okay, but, but before but? we before we draw that conclusion, I just want to raise the two issues that I did have with this study. And they're 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 linked really. They're kind of the same thing. So 
the study was powered to be able to detect a 50% increase in the hazard. Right. And it was powered at 80%. Now that's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it does strike me that, you know, many trials are often powered at 90%. This one went with 80%. That's not, there's nothing crazy about that, but it was, you know, only powered at 80%. And the 50% increase, you know, did strike me a little bit as... Pretty big. Big. And I say that, you know, obviously we're talking about HIV incidence, which we are pointing out is very high in these communities, but in absolute terms is not... low. Yeah, huge. So you need you need big numbers. So I, I I get why they did this. It would have taken a, a huge study to have brought that down to one point three and up the power to ninety percent. But you know it does strike me that would a, would a forty percent increase have have changed policy? Would a thirty percent increase have changed policy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. And I say that because you know they're they're you're right. I mean, so comparing which one it was a. a DMPA to IUD. What's DMPA again? It's That's the, 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 the depot. 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 It's the shot. Carrying depot to IUD, it was 1.04, right? Spot on null. No difference. Right. But comparing the depot to the implant, it was 1.23. Confidence interval overlaps one, but as you know, I don't care about that. Uh, it goes from 0.95 to 1.59. And that, that says to me that it's not impossible to me that there isn't some increased risk. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is, how much would you consider acceptable for the benefits that you you might get in terms of, you know, getting more women onto uh, hormonal right. con- or onto contraception if they want it? I just it, it's it did strike me as a as it may be a little strong to say we know 100 percent there is zero increased risk. You know, it, it's it's interesting because the authors state that in the statistical section we chose a 50 percent increase in HIV HIV risk on the basis of formative work with stakeholders to determine a meaningful difference that would inform policy change. And they actually reference a paper that they wrote about that, which I have not looked at, but I assume goes into a very detailed description of why they felt it was acceptable to aim for a 50% increase. Yeah. Yeah. And and as I say, this is not, you know, even though I work in the HIV world, I don't do much around prevention. And so I can't say that that, that that's you know that's crazy in any way. I'm just trying to say that that it isn't impossible to me that there isn't some increase. Chris, what do you what do you think? Well, I I wanted to actually ask you kind of a an epi wonky question, if I if I could. And I, I um, you're gonna nerd out on us. I'm gonna. Well, I was hoping that Matt would would help me on this because I, I was curious about a statement they made here, where they said on page five we did continuous use analyses using both non-causal methods. And causal methods. Causal yes. analysis methods is were used to estimate hazard ratios during continuous use. That is smiling. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, wait a minute, isn't what this a randomized controlled trial? Why do we need causal mean? inference methods in a randomized control experiment? I, I was... I realized that there's a big gap here. I, 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 could you explain? <laughs> could you fill that for me a little bit? Go for yes, it. I was, I was, I was desperately hoping that some one of you would that. bring this up, <laughs> not so that one of you would bring this up. Though I didn't have to be the one. Yes, I love this. <laughs> so the reason is this, right? So, so the three of us have all done randomized trials in the past, in which you know you have to deal with the fact that you know intention to treat says once randomized 
analyzed. So if people don't, you know, comply with the treatment and you still have to keep them in the study and you have to keep them in the group to which they were randomized. Okay. Then we have, you know, either per protocol or as treated analyses where we say, okay, we want to actually know not what happens when, you know, you randomize people and they do what they want, but uh, what happens if everybody were to stay on their treatment. And so we do some jiggering around with putting people back into the groups we think they were in. And uh, it turns out that's actually a bad thing to be doing because the very reasons why they didn't take the treatment in the first place are those very same confounders that appeared in your observational study. And so if you want to get the effect, not the, not the intention to treat effect, which is the effect of essentially of, of assigning the intervention, assigning the, the drug, but you want to know what would have happened if everybody had stayed on the drug, then you need these causal inference methods. Because you're becoming they, more observational-like. And less exactly. Like, exactly. Ah, yes. And so just moving people around doesn't solve the problem. And and these are really clever waiting methods that people use to try and solve these problems. Hmm. Now, they, they, they are clever in their analytics. You still have to have the data to be able to solve the problem, to be able to predict the reasons why people don't follow the treatment. But it's a, it's a really cool method. Hmm. Cool. Thank you for explaining that. Absolutely. Okay. So before we move on, any any last points either yeah. you guys want to raise or concerns? Yeah, I just want to underscore what we said before. That, that in fact, this is this, this study really gives us good news, but it also gives us bad news. The good news is, you know, essentially the results of the study. The bad news, as we have talked about, is that in this general population, the the incidence of HIV infection was so high. And not only was it a general population, it was a general population in a very rigorous study, where the the researchers worked very hard to provide good education. Educational services at the at the enrollment and at, e, at each visit. So this is like the best case scenario in terms of a public health setting for minimizing the HIV incidence. And that's really bad news. Yeah, it's still yeah. happening at yeah. incredibly shockingly high rates. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I let me kill me as always take the last word. And I have three last words this time. <laughs> Number one. Where was the limitations section? Did, <laughs> well, that was one of their limitations. I, they didn't I have was, one. I <laughs> didn't. Did I they? looked. <laughs> they, they, do say the word, they do say the word limitation once or, or something, something close to it. So they acknowledge one thing. But I found no limitation section. And it, it was anyway. Okay. Second question. If you appear twice in the authorship list, do you get to put it on your CV twice? <laughs> oh, did that happen? Did that really happen? Oh, yeah, funny. well, it does only because, remember, they didn't list authors, right? They had a corporate authorship. So then at the end, they have a giant list. Yeah. And I was just going through it, again, to find out who we knew. And uh, Jennifer Smith is actually listed twice on there. And different, I bring it different up. Different institutions? I'm sure she didn't. Possibly. Certainly possibly. But I, I don't know. University of Itzvadishrand and... The other time it says uh, University of Fitzpatrick. So no, <laughs> but I bring this up because we did this once with a we. Well, I, we don't think we did it because it wasn't in the version we submitted. But when the journal published it, one of my colleagues was listed twice, and we had to write to the journal to get them to take it off. So it's yeah, huh. it happens even yeah. to the best of us. So question number three: What about Thea and Thea at all? Thea and Thea at all. There you go. Question number three. Do you guys read, generally read, or do you write acknowledgement sections anymore? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've kind of steered away from them. I actually, I, I, only because, you know, journals have gotten more. Now, if you want to name somebody, you actually have to, you know, get their permission and things. But this one ended up, the, the last line, the echo trial is dedicated to the memory of Ward Cates, which I thought was a very nice, uh, mm. you know, way to, way to end your, your, your trial. Did anyway. you know that individual, Matt? 
No, but the former former I think director of FHI 360. Am uh, I right about that's that? That's so sad. Yeah, yeah, and I think a mentor to a lot of people. Anyway, let's move on. So. In our second segment, we are going to talk about an article in Vox by Brian Resnick, and the article was entitled, Hyped Up Science Erodes Trust, Here's How Researchers Can Fight Back. And the idea of this article is something that we have talked about many times here on this podcast. So he starts off like presenting an example of a case where uh, an author did a study, wrote a very nuanced interpretation of their results with all the limitations, and then it gets handed over to the, the PR department to write a press release. And the press release ends up hyping things up. And what gets picked up by the news, it's not the study, it's the press release. And this is something that, you know, as I said, we have been talking about since the beginning of this podcast. In particular, Chris, you you alerted us to this. I think it was actually in one of your yeah, my Amazing and Amusings. Amazing yeah, and Amusings, uh, excuse me. Yeah, where you told <laughs> us about a, a, a 2014 study. Which I think um, they refer that, to in here. They, they do, and that's why I'm, I'm bringing it up, where they said, you know, news articles that come out of, of uh, after press releases are more likely to exaggerate findings. And so what this article was reporting on was a, a trial that was actually done by a guy named Chris Chambers and colleagues, where w- they published this paper in BMC Medicine, in which essentially what they tried to do was figure out whether or not the press release was really driving what was going on in terms of the news coverage. So what they did was, and I'm, I'm quoting here, so they, they had the press releases for various studies, and they randomized them to either receive an intervention or not, with the intervention consisting of their team jumping in to make sure that the content of the press releases accurately reflected the scientific study. So Again, I'm quoting here, for instance, they made sure the claims in the press release emphasized that the study was correlational and could not imply causation and so on and so forth. And what they found was that when they did this, it did, in fact, lead to more accurate coverage of these particular studies. But they also found that it didn't lead to less coverage overall. So these studies were still getting picked up. Seemed like it was good news. Now, one thing I thought was was really interesting about the way this article is written, if you'll notice, Brian goes to painstaking lengths, I thought, to point out that the study itself that 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 did this was a correlational study, not <laughs> a causal study, because even though it started off as a trial, they didn't have enough to uh, draw inferences and they had to actually analyze it as an observational study, which I thought was like he went through, he was clearly practicing what he preaches here. So good for him. Anyway, so I thought it was, I, you know, I thought it was an interesting article. What do you, what do you, what do you make of it? I, you know, I think one of the points that he tried to make, which I think is, is, is a really valid point is that it is on us. The onus is on us, the researchers, because as we communicate in lay terms to the public relations office or the press office in our respective institutions, they hear it one way, and it may not be the same thing that we're saying, but we're always given an opportunity to sign off on it. And I think a lot of a lot of times, either we overlook it, we don't sign off on it, or we kind of let it slide because mm-hmm. it's you know, it's a little juicier than than yeah. than the way we explained it to them, and so we think, well. That's not so bad, you know. That's kind of cool, but but we have to strive to be really accurate yeah, and, and, and feedback on that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is it is our responsibility here, yeah. even if the press, you know. And I, I I don't know that they 
showed much evidence that the press office tends to go ahead of their skis again, and that they are the you know they're their source of overhyping information. I think they were a little bit more circumspect about whether you know where this originally came from. But Tony, you're so right. Like, it, it's our job mm-hmm. to read the damn right. press release, press release yeah. and agree with it, yeah. or say like, come on, or not tone it down, or yeah. that's not what I meant, or in mice, you know. Yeah. Let's say that. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Chris, I, I, I agree with you. This when you when you brought this the the original study to us, and my take on it was that it really did kind of lay the the blame at the the foot of the of the PR offices, and and it it's it sort of like you know obviously I don't I don't want to have to take responsibility for anything, so that sounded great to me. But but I you know it, this really does point out, and I I would certainly agree that this is it's not the PR office's fault, right? We are ultimately responsible for the message that goes out in that press release, you know, whether or not we wrote the first draft of it. And so we have to be the ones that that go through and make sure that if there are important limitations or caveats or nuances or or it's just, you know, factually incorrect or, or juiced up to make it sound better, that we take that out. That is entirely on us. I yeah. think, you know, we have concerns that A, we don't know how to do this very well, so we can, you know, we should rely on them, but also B, that if it is not you know, super exciting, it won't get picked up. This seems to suggest that's not true. Although I have to say, that's where I'm a bit skeptical. I'm not. I'm not sure there's enough. I mean, I, I personally, I didn't go and read the BMC medicine study, but I, you know, I don't know that based on at least what I'm reading about it, that there's enough information for me to yet say that this would generalize and that that you know, if you have studies with tons of, of caveats and don't say anything, you know, that, that is, goes way beyond the, the, what the study actually says that the, the news is necessarily going to pick it up in the same way. So I, I want to see more there. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think we start out every one of these um, segments or every one of segment ones with you, Matt, reciting various, various press releases, essentially titles or, of, of press releases. And, you know, we kind of chuckle and we snicker and, and, you know, some of them we think are silly and some of them we think are, you know, just sound a little outlandish. But, uh, you know, I don't think that we have really sent the message that we are we should be, in fact, critical of the, the more silly press releases that, you know, that, that we talk about. And maybe going forward, we can we can like think about that and maybe mm-hmm. critique some of those. I'd be super curious to see this same kind of analysis, but instead looking at rather than press releases, but uh, you know, stuff coming off of Twitter or Facebook and how how those sort of now I would say more maliciously oh or intentionally mis- that's misrepresented uh, interpretations of science yeah. get transmitted. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, I yeah. had that experience a couple of years ago where we published that paper about the, the pertussis vaccine right. and got picked up by the anti-vaxxers and got picked up by the anti-vaxxers and the, the gist of the, of the paper reading this vaccine works a little bit better than that vaccine. Right. And we tried to figure out why. Yeah. And their take was, this is why you should never get your baby vaccinated against pertussis. And okay. we're like, wait, right. we <laughs> no, didn't say that. No, no. At all, yeah. <laughs> you know, do, and and so other than that, do you guys have a lot of experience working on press releases with with the? I keep saying PR of us. I, I don't know what the right term for who, who is it writing I do it communication. That's the word right. I'm looking I, for. I go back and forth with them and suggest edits, and you know, it's, it's usually a pretty benign yeah. quick process. It takes yeah. a couple hours, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't have too much experience with this, but to the extent that I do, I mean, they they don't. I, I've never had anyone push back when you say I want this in there, or never. you know, uh, th- th- I think they are really doing their best to come up with a, a message that they think is both accurate, but also will make it interesting because they're you know they're about communication, and especially the communication office at the Boston University School of Public Health who do a superb job 
They do. Wow, Don. Well done. <laughs> I assume I assume they listen. Yeah, I assume they listen. They All right. Let's let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And as you know, I have decided that when the amazing and amusing no longer needs an introduction. So we are going to jump right into it. And I am gonna take the prerogative to go first this time. And the reason for that is mine is going to build off of the previous study, not the, not the uh, press release study, but the, uh, the first study, the DEPRA study, for which, as you heard, when I tried to read the title of the study, I could not pronounce the names of the drugs, and I cannot pronounce the names of any drugs, as you guys know. So there was an article, which I found really, really amusing, but, but mostly just enlightening. And you guys may have read this because it, it's, it's not new. It was uh, 2018 in JAMA, but it's been kind of making the rounds on Twitter, which I thought was really interesting. It was by Daniel Frank, and it's titled, I'm talking to you, Mab, how to pronounce the new unpronounceable pharmaceuticals. Did you guys come across no, this one? No, I didn't see this. I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so it's... Uh, uh, Daniel Frank from Med Northwest, Seattle, Washington, writes about some of the history of how drugs got their name. So this, he says, as physicians, we are embarrassed when we don't know how to say a drug's name properly. To avoid appearing incompetent, we skirt the issue by using trade names or worse therapeutic classes. Sure, it's more informative to say your psoriasis patient is on secukinumab than on biologics, but this means tackling in front of your peers an invented monstrosity of a word that was never mentioned in medical school. Monstrosity okay. of words. And we also know that the drug companies intentionally make the, tra- yeah. the, the, the drug names well, really well, unpronounceable. Well, hang on. So, 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 so here's the, drug the history names. on this. Yeah, we know that. But, <laughs> hang, but hang on. So here's the history on this. So for new molecules, there is a governing body that proves a generic name and determines the pronun- proper pronunciation, the United States Adopted Names Council. <laughs> I did not know the, that. The USAN Council is a small organization supported by the American Medical Association that works with pharmaceutical companies to reach an agreement on a drug's generic name. For only $23,000, you <gasps> can get an official moniker for your new drug. Uh, so drug companies might $23,000? Pr- That's yep. crazy. Drug companies might prefer an unpronounceable generic to pair with their zippy trade name, but USAN Council, together with the WHO, is the final arbiter in the generic name, which they call the non-proprietary name. It's non-proprietary because no one owns it, like the moon. Okay. Now, since the 1960s, we've used standard word fragments for all drugs in the same therapeutic class. I didn't know that, but I probably could have guessed that. So if we see a new generic drug, snoozepedium, we know the suffix pedium means it's a sleeper in the same pharmacological category as zolpedium, so on. Standardized naming is... Yeah, sorry, there you go. See, I can't do this. (laughs) But as expected and designed by committee, we often end up with drugs that like... Ustekinumab, which seems like a former Soviet republic, or <laughs> some sort of which is not an extremely rich Italian dessert, but a sodium gluso. Con- anyway, very funny. I, it's a it, it's a really excellent article. Let me just read you one last part, which I thought was particularly funny, and I don't know because he says, "And pity poor uh, Deb Deb Bigatran, the Bigatran, the Bigatran. Never okay. heard of it. What is it? What does it do?" It, it has the bigotran has the suffix gatran uh, to indicate it's like somebody's thrum- joking, Matt. <laughs> to indicate it's a thrombin in- initiator of the ar- ar- type, <laughs> and is pronounced. And he tells you it's pronounced 
Debigatran. So I've been pronouncing it Debigatran, but it's pronounced Debigatran, where the Gatran component rhymes with cat fan. <laughs> However, everybody, virtually everyone, is calling it Debigatran, which is wrong. <laughs> And so if your speech recognition software translates the patient took the bigger tram to the patient took the bigger tram, <laughs> you have only yourself to blame. <laughs> that's really funny. That is really funny. Oh, that's great. I thought it was, I thought it was really funny, but also really informative. Uh, I didn't so, know that. Anyway. Send that to us. That's so great. Uh, I very see cool. That. Very cool. All right, Chris, what do you got? All right. I found this uh, very, very interesting paper in Nature uh, called The Moral Machine Experiments. Lead author Edmund Awad, A-W-A-D. There was uh, other, uh, another number of people on this paper, but they were concentrated at Harvard and MIT. And so this guy's obviously a scientific fiction, a science fiction geek, because he starts with Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, which you no doubt know. Matt? Nick knows. I did Nick not knows. know. So for those who don't know, the first law of robotics is that robots cannot harm humans or through an action allow humans to be harmed. The second law is that robots must obey humans except when that conflicts with rule number one, meaning you cannot tell your robot to harm someone. Right. right? That's the said. And rule three is robots can allow themselves to be harmed unless it conflicts with rules one and two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this is just a, you know, a, 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 a cool science fiction convention that sets out the sort of structure for the, the iRobot novels by Asimov, which were really great. But it, it, it leads right into the question about ethical moral decision-making by autonomous machines in the current day. Now, we, we think about the Terminator, right, coming to get us, and, like, he's not ethical. That's pretty clear. <laughs> yep. But, nope, he was bad. But, but he was definitely more bad. recently, there, there was, like, in the news a couple of weeks ago, there was talking to some physics professor who was like, I don't want any, any, any autonomous weapons because weapons should not be allowed to autonomously decide whether someone lives or dies. It should always be a human to have, like, a, an, like a, a brain behind there rather than just an algorithm. And he said, you know, we, we fixate on that. But, in fact, we, we shouldn't be fixating on that. We should be fixating on autonomous cars, which are here mm. or about to be. In fact, they are here because right. Tesla's. Right. are right. semi-autonomous right. and are now making decisions. And so like if we are if we have these cars making decisions which have potentially life and death implications about maneuvering, yeah. don't we need to build into them some sort of ethical structure? Whoa! I was like, "Wow, <laughs> what a cool That's question! A that is a great question." And 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 then they, they like, how the do answer? we how do we solve this? Because like, you know, the standard way to do this would be to create a series of scenarios and then administer a questionnaire to a bunch of people. But the the, the, the problem you run into immediately is that there's so many permutations uh-huh. of this scenario. Uh-huh. The classic one being you're driving along with a bunch of passengers and someone walks in front of you with a baby with a baby, and you're going to decide whether you're going to run over the baby or you're going to swerve and hit the concrete barrier and kill yourself like that and the other is, people in your car and the other people in your car right, right. that is the dilemma and he says there's so many dimensions about this to, that to try to do this through a questionnaire is impossible so what they didn't say was so cool they created a video game and they put it online and they allowed people to play the game and they would play 13 different permutations with all these different like variations in like who's crossing what they look like what their sex was whether they were a doctor versus a homeless guy whether they were a kid versus an adult elderly versus male female you know dog versus person number of people in the car all the permutations you can come up with and 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 they they ran this they got 39 million <laughs> oh, jeez oh my god data points really Okay, and so now they yep. have like the, love the, the biggest moral, moral data, data set, set in history. 
just on this one sort of rather God. abstract, like who lives, who yeah. dies. It's like yeah. Bill Bicknell, who would always uh-huh. say who lives and who dies and with what degree of misery. That's, but that's no misery. That's the definition that's of public health. Public health. Yeah. But, but anyway, so, so they did this experiment, which I thought it was super cool. And they, the results they got, and these are representative from 130 plus countries around the world. So basically the entire world was, uh-huh. their, was their data set. Uh-huh. And, and you're going to love this too, because their, their figure two is a bunch of histograms. And, and it says typically in, this, in the notes here, typically, you know, we would include 95% confidence intervals around the histograms, but with a data set of 39 million, we didn't need to do that. <laughs> <You don't need laughs> I thought that was a little bit of showboating, but nonetheless, yeah. it's super cool. And so the, the so bottom true. line, which is somewhat reassuring, is that if you look at the preferences that across the world, this is all parts of the world averaged, people are like good about sparing humans versus animals. So uh-huh. like if it's a dog versus a human, they're going to spare the human. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's good news, yeah. I, I think, yeah. right? People like people. And that they generally you should try to save as many people as possible and that they favor the young versus the alt. Okay. But then it gets weird. <laughs> like, cause now you start to get into like funny, like, huh, what does that mean? Like, you know, in this simulation, some of the people crossing the road could be jaywalking. Uh-huh. All right, so they're 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 criminals. They're scofflaws. They're scofflaws, yeah. and so it, it turns out they that they are. Did they deserve to die for jaywalking. <laughs> no. the, the jaywalking is a significant <laughs> penalty. Like, whether you live or die, is a little <laughs> severe. It's a little severere. But they said that they also were 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 down on people with lower social economic status. Oh no, I know it made me feel bad. That's and terrible. you know. That's really Obese bad. Obese people get a huge penalty on this. Oh no, that's there's even, a, there's a, that's there's a death worse. preference. But even further down the 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 list is men. So females are much preferred to men in terms of who's going to live and who's going to die in this scenario. Oh really? Men 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 die at a higher rate than women. They did. They do. Uh, they're preferred ethically. Uh-huh. The women saving the women is preferred well, over saving the men. It's like the Titanic to a substantial you know, degree. Women and children first. They also broke this or down last. by like the. The, the name of the character, like the, the identity of the character, because, you know, it could be a an obese man or a skinny woman or a young doctor or an old homeless person, right? Uh-huh. So there's all these different. So when they actually broke it down by the, the specific character, now you have these kind of combinations. They, they created this weighting of, like, who lives and who dies based on specific identities. And so the ones that were most favored were infants and strollers. Uh-huh. Girls, followed by boys, followed by pregnant women, followed by male doctors, followed by female doctors, followed by female athletes. And then it becomes a wash. Mm. On the the significantly disfavored side, cats were the most disfavored, (laughs) (laughs) followed by criminals, Uh. and then Dogs. So dogs more than criminals. Wow. Dogs are prioritized over criminals. Now, now, how do they do that? Did they, did they like stop the action and the person leans out of the window of the car and asks the individual whether they are a criminal? Well, no, they had, they had little icons. So you but can how see. Are you gonna, how are you going to know that the person you're about to run over is a criminal? Well, on the picture, on the video game. No, you no, see, no, no. But when they turn this into you, an algorithm, you, you how are they the going to know? Well, because they, the algorithm, you know, the, the, the game knows who these people are. <laughs> and the person who's playing the game can see, oh, here comes a miscreant who's old uh, and has a dog or something like that. You know? <laughs> so I, I thought old that this was all very, very interesting and on some degree kind of <laughs> disturbing to me. <laughs> now, Fascinating. The final thing I'm going to say, Beth, and then I'm going to pass it off, was that they they then did a clustering analysis because they had 130 countries and they wanted to see like how do these sort of ethical phenotypes hang together across different regions and it turns out they 
do hang together across regions. So when they, they analyzed like similar ethical behavior groups, they found in fact that those similar behavioral groups, preference groups, strongly aligned with geographic parts of the world. And so there was a, there was a clear Western US Eurocentric view, there was an Asian view, and then there was a South American view. And those differed substantially in terms of their priorities. So for example, in the Western cluster, they liked sparing humans over animals. They liked sparing more people rather than fewer people good. They liked sparing the young and they liked sparing people of higher status and sparing the lawful versus the unlawful. They also favored sparing the fit over the unfit. In East Asia, by contrast, the sparing the young was significantly de-emphasized versus sparing the old, perhaps suggesting a reverence for the elderly and those of higher respect. And in fact, Sparing pedestrians was was favored, and sparing the lawful was favored, but sparing the fit was unfavored. They went for the opposite. And in the Southern Hemisphere, dogs win. Pets, sparing pets over people significantly preferred. Wow, I would not that's have interesting. That. I thought this was a, a, a fantastic paper, and I, and I, I want to like put it into my, my classes somewhere because I ah. thought it was, it was so provocative and interesting. Very interesting. Don, what do you got for us? All right, so I'm going to, I'm just throwing in the towel completely. <laughs> Which towel? <laughs> With a, the wacky and wild towel. So I'm just going to tell a joke. Ooh. Excellent. Go for it's it. It's a joke that Go I heard. It. Does it have to. <laughs> I do it with tuna fish? Uh, no, no, no. This is a joke I heard told by an announcer in an Australian rugby game. So if you can imagine me saying this with an Australian accent. Mate. Mate. Oh. But I'm not going to try. So, Good. A frog goes into a bank and approaches the teller. He can see from her nameplate that her name is Patricia Wack. Miss Wack, I'd like to get $10,000 loan to take a holiday. Patty looks at the frog in disbelief and asks his name. The frog says his name is Kermit Jagger. His dad is Mick Jagger, and that it's okay he knows the bank manager. Patty explains that he will need to secure the loan with some collateral. The frog says, sure, I have this, and produces a tiny porcelain elephant, about half an inch tall, bright pink, and perfectly formed. Very confused, Patty explains that she'll have to consult with the bank manager and disappears into the back office. She finds the manager and says... There's a frog called Kermit Jagger out there who claims to know you and wants to borrow $10,000, and he wants to use this as collateral. She holds up the tiny pink elephant. I mean, what in the world is this? The bank manager looks back at her and says, it's a knick-knack, Paddywhack. Give the frog a loan. His old man's a rolling stone. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you'd like that joke, Chris. That is good. Okay, see, that is very now, I have good. I've heard that, I have heard that joke before, but never with the last part in it. I'd never heard the with the... Uh, the Rolling Stone oh, part. Really? So that was, it. that was an excellent. <laughs> yes, just just the just the knickknack paddywhack. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx or tweet me at, at @profmattfox or Chris at, at @id.gill or Don at, at @dtheo1, or you can find us on the Pop. Ulation Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. 